Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Dr Caroline Stewart, a consultant paediatrician working in southern rural New South Wales. Thanks for joining me today, Dr Stewart. Thanks very much. All right, we'll start with a case. You're working in the emergency department and the triage nurse escorts a mother straight to the resuscitation room. She then places her seven-day-old baby on the bed saying that he has not been feeding well and she's worried about his colour. The baby appears cyanosed and floppy. Dr Stewart, this baby clearly needs some urgent monitoring and interventions. Can you outline how we should go about getting a set of observations on this baby? Yeah, sure. I totally agree. You've obviously got a very sick baby there. And I think it's a a good description of what a very sick baby would look like, which is often their first sign is they stop feeding and don't feed particularly well before they become critically unwell. So for getting observations on this baby, I guess the first thing you would do is you're going your classic ABCD, don't ever forget glucose. So what you're looking at is you want to look at their saturations, but this baby is a seven-day-old baby. So actually what you want at this point is their pre-ductal saturations, which is on their right hand. The reason for that is because of changes in circulation postnatally, blood to the right hand represents blood to the brain. So at this point in a very unwell child, we don't particularly care about what the blood flow is to the gut and to the feet and to the legs. We really only care about blood to the brain and we're going to titrate our therapies to that. So that's going to be the first place you're going to put it. You're obviously going to attach cardiorespiratory monitoring to check their respiratory rate and their heart rate as well. And then also you're going to try and get a blood pressure as soon as you can. And then DEFG, don't ever forget glucose. You should also remember ABCD to check their pupils as well, because one of the early differentials for this could be actually non-accidental injury. So you could actually have a child with a critical brain injury that's presented like this as well. So always remember as part of that initial getting a set of observations on the baby to remember to check the pupils, as well as always don't ever forget glucose. And obviously remember to also check the fontanelle as this can be another sign of intracranial injury as a cause of illness. Um, So when you're thinking about things like non-accidental injury or meningitis. Oh, that's very good. So in this age group, we've sort of got to have a broad differential, including thinking about a duct-dependent congenital heart lesion and also, as you say, remembering to do the blood pressure, which we don't always remember to do in babies. Now, how would we go about differentiating central from peripheral cyanosis in babies with pale and dark skin? So, look, I think... So I think almost the colour of the skin almost doesn't matter. It's actually the same technique that you use no matter the baby, which is the best places to look for cyanosis is the mucosa, so central mucosa. Look at the colour of the tongue and the colour of the mucosa under the tongue and then also the nail bed. So they're the good places to look. 
One of the things you can be caught with, not in a case like this where the baby's very unwell, but I had a case of a baby that actually had a congenital heart lesion, which meant they had two independent circulations and were relying on a duct to keep them alive and their circulations were mixing. So they never were going to get oxygen saturations better than 50 or 60%. And they were written as warm, pink and well perfused by the junior doctor because they looked really well. So sometimes newborn babies before they collapse, if they've got a cardiac lesion, will look really well and active despite having terrible saturations and actually the only way you can really tell how bad their saturations are is make sure you look in those nail beds and that mucosa and you'll actually pick up whoa that baby's actually got their sats into the 70s oh very good and now in this baby the o2 saturation is 80 percent on room air and the respiratory rate is 80 with occasional pauses the heart rate is 180 and the blood pressure is 50 systolic on palpation. Capillary refill is six seconds. So this baby's very unwell. Mm -hmm. In terms of the respiratory um, function, how would you define apnea in a neonate? I guess there's two questions there. So the first thing is the classic definition of apnea in a neonate is um, cessation of breathing for more than 20 seconds or cessation of breathing for more than 10 seconds with an associated bradycardia. Having said that, what you've got in this situation with a child, you might find that their occasional pauses don't meet the definition of apnea, but they are actually telling you the baby's really unwell and is actually beginning to decompensate and is at risk of getting a much longer true apnea. So if they're breathing at 80 with a rate of with occasional pauses, you probably find that their pauses are only a few seconds. But it's starting to tell you that this baby is tipping to about to be having true apneas because their breathing is becoming really irregular and that occasional pauses shows that the child is actually starting to decompensate. Righto, so we'd, we'd need to be prepared for managing the apnea that may come. Yeah, so if you look at those observations, you've got respiratory, you've got a very tachypneic baby, so normal respiratory rate should be up to 60, and this baby's at 80. Occasional pauses, which shows you that child, again, is peri-arrest. They are about to stop breathing. Saturations are obviously very low. Heart rate's obviously very high. BP50 systolic on palpation, so an easy way to think about what normal blood pressure is for any age is gestation, MAP, mean arterial pressure, is gestation. So you would expect this child to have a mean arterial pressure if they're a term infant of around 40. So if they've got a 50 systolic, their mean arterial pressure is not going to be particularly good. You already know it's low. And obviously a cap refill of six seconds. So we have a very, very unwell child at this point. should we be thinking about in our differential for the cause of this baby's cyanosis? So I think I mentioned at the beginning, the differential is really, really broad at this age. But having said that, your sort of top four diagnoses are all the same, which is sepsis, 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 and sepsis. So really the most common cause of an extremely unwell neonate in this age is sepsis, and it will always be your most likely cause. Then you need to think about other differentials. So respiratory, so it could be an, uh, a baby that's had bronchiolitis and have and now become so unwell that they're tipping into cardiorespiratory collapse. RSV can be one where they can be only mildly unwell, but they can actually get quite severe apneas. And so can be another differential with this. The other differential obviously is cardiac. So they could have an underlying cardiac lesion. It may not actually be a cyanotic cardiac lesion, but it might be a ductal dependent lesion where the duct is now closed and they've gone from coping to now tipping into cardiorespiratory collapse. And then you've got lots of other ranges of causes. So things like metabolic diseases can present 
like this. So always remember metabolics. And even though each metabolic disease in and of itself is incredibly rare, as a group, they are surprisingly common and they present with a sepsis-like picture. So this would be one of the other things that you would always have in the top of your mind. And then the other thing in the top of your mind is a non-accidental injury. So a brain injury can present like this as well. Okay. Now, in giving this baby oxygen, what method of delivery would you use? Uh, this baby's really, really unwell. So this baby's about to arrest on you. So I would actually use, I would actually attach a baby to a Neopuff or a bag mask if you had it. Ideally, at this point, I would probably give them a CPAP um, using a Neopuff and then occasional respiratory positive pressure ventilation if they as their breath becomes less regular, which it's going to do over the next minute or so. I would definitely give them, give them 100% oxygen at this point. So one of the things that you will find is people are sometimes nervous about giving oxygen. They think, oh, it's a cardiac lesion. I can't give oxygen. I worry about whether the duct is going to close. I'm going to make the situation worse. It's one of the sort of teachings that we're taught. The truth is you have a child in collapse and you're, avoid, you're perfusing the organs. If they have come in collapsed because the duct has closed, giving them oxygen is going to make bugger all difference to the to the actual closure of the duct. It's going to save their life and going to, and going to perfuse their organs. So never be afraid to give 100% oxygen in this case. So you would always give 100% oxygen, ideally with CPAP if, you, if it's available to give you, to, to give to the child. If you can't do it, you do 100% non-rebreather. Okay, yeah. that's, that's great to know. And what sort of clinical features could help us ascertain if the cause of this baby's cyanosis is cardiac or respiratory? That's a really big question and probably a podcast in and of itself. So I guess you can go through a few things. So the first things you can do are looking at a good cardiac examination. So when you examine their chest as part of examining them, at this age they may not actually have a murmur, but what you can actually do is put your hand on the chest, so feel for thrills and heave, and do it over all four areas. And sometimes with an underlying lesion such as a critical a critical pulmonary stenosis or aortic stenosis, you'll feel the thrill over the area. Obviously, listening for a murmur, so that will make it all more likely that there's a cardiac thing going on. Having hepatomegaly, again, makes it more likely. So I consider the size of the liver to be like the adult's JVP, so that's in a baby's JVP. So just as in adults, when you're looking for heart failure, look for a raised JVP. In a neonate, what you look for is a big liver. So in a, if you've got a big liver, it's going to make cardiac more likely as well. The other thing is looking at their perfusion and so actually looking at their perfusion upper limb versus lower limb. So one of the causes of sudden cardiac collapse at this age could be a critical aortic stenosis. So what you actually might find is their cap refill and their saturations are very different on their upper limb, on their particularly their right upper limb, compared to their legs. So that's often a sign that there's some sort of obstruction going on. Having said that, I suspect this child's cap refill is probably terrible anywhere, everywhere, because they're so unwell. So even though it's a sign they talk about in textbooks, it's often not that useful. The other thing that's useful to get is a pre and postductal. So as well as pre and postductal saturations, pre and postductal blood pressure. So looking at blood pressure on the right arm and then blood pressure on the legs. And again, if there's a very big difference, we talk about more than 10 millimetres mercury in difference, okay. then that makes it again more likely that there's a cardiac component. So they're the sort of things you can look on an examination. And I do talk about saturation. Sorry, I'll go back to that as well. So pre and postductal saturations. So that's saturations on the right arm and then saturations on the leg. And more than 3% difference makes it more likely to be cardiac. That's what you look for on examination. What you can look for, there's lots of tests you can do, which I'm, you might 
go into, but some of the tests you can do is a chest X-ray is the simplest and quickest test. So on a chest X-ray, the things that would point to cardiac is obviously a, a heart that's too big or too small. A mediastinum that's too narrow is a sign of a congenital heart disease or lungs that are too black. So as in look like they're underfilled lungs that aren't getting enough blood flow to them or too white as in they're flooded lungs with too much fluid. Very simple definition. You don't need to know lots of definitions of the different types of cardiac disease. But if you have a heart that's either the wrong shape in the wrong place or lungs that are way too wet or way too black, then all of that points towards a cardiac lesion. Great, that, that's very useful. And so some of the tests that are spoken about, one is the hyperoxia test for trying to determine mm -hmm. if the cyanosis is more likely to be cardiac. What are your thoughts about this test? So it is a useful test, but the way they talk about it in the textbooks is not particularly useful. So just so you know, the hyperoxia test is basically looking at a child's response to 100% oxygen. And the idea being that if they have a problem with the lungs, if you give them 100% oxygen, the 100% oxygen will at least partially overcome the problem with the lungs. And so the way you see that is an increase in the arterial oxygen saturation as a result or arterial oxygen con content in millimetres mercury. So a traditional hyperoxia test is where you have a child on whatever respiratory support they're currently on, you take an arterial blood gas, you then put them on 100% oxygen for, I can't remember what it is, three or four minutes, and then you repeat the blood gas and you look and see if you've managed to push that oxygen level, that PaO2, classically they look at can you get it above 150 but in practical reality, you've got an incredibly unwell child here. So rather than stuffing around with trying to get an arterial gas, get a venous gas and look at the oxygen saturations in response to 100% oxygen. And those two things will give you a good clue as to a likely cause. So classically with a, con a cyanotic congenital heart disease, you put them on 100% oxygen and their saturations might go up 5% and it barely, barely shoves. Whereas an underlying respiratory disease, you will see a significant improvement in oxygenation. It may not be enough, but you will see an improvement. The other clue, and it's not a hyperoxia test, but the other clue is, again, is looking at how much carbon dioxide retention you've got. Again, if it's an underlying respiratory cause, you're more likely to get hypercarbia compared to if it's cardiac, your, your carbon dioxide level is usually essentially normal. Okay, so basically we give 100% oxygen and see the response and then yeah. relay that onto the... Yeah, the is it, yeah. rather than yeah. stuffing around with trying to do a gas, yeah. Obviously, we want to quickly obtain some venous access in this baby. Mm. What are your thoughts about how we might do this and options being peripheral or perhaps a, a UVC in a, a three or five, four day old baby, one slightly younger than this? Yeah, so obviously the quickest is going to be what you need to do with this baby because this baby is really sick. So I agree if they're three or four days old, look at the umbi as your first place. So classically with a very unwell baby, actually as part of my primary survey, I usually ask them to put really um, wet gauze over the umbi site while I'm doing my initial assessment because you can start softening the umbilicus, which means you're more likely to be able to use that as central access. Mm -hmm. If it is available, you basically hold it with tooth forceps and you slice it off as straight as you can with a scalpel and have a look and see if the veins look 
patient and look viable and if you're going to get something in there. But my advice is don't spend ages mucking around with it. In a seven-day-old baby, you might be lucky. So put the gauze on and you might be really lucky. It might be an umbi that's taken a while to come off and you might have a good sight and and be able to use it, but don't spend a lot of time in it. This child realistically is incredibly unwell. I'd probably go for an IO as my initial access um, unless I could see a vein that I was 100% sure on. But the rules are two attempts, less than five minutes, and if you don't succeed, you go straight for an IO. Fair enough. No, that sounds good. So we do manage to get access and the baby's blood sugar level comes back at 2.2 millimoles. So we need to give the baby some 10% dextrose as well as a normal saline fluid bolus. What would your approach be to managing the hypoglycemia and also hypotension in this baby with fluids and dextrose acutely and ongoing? So to manage sugar, the dose is 2 mils per kilo of 10% dextrose. So in a term baby, you can estimate a weight as being between three and a half and four kilos. So it's going to be between seven to eight mils of 10% dextrose and you just give that as a single push. In fluid management, the generally, particularly if you're starting to be concerned that there's a cardiac thing, often you'll give your boluses but do them in small aliquots, so small and frequent. So usually I give 10 mils per kilo to start with yep. and check perfusion and check blood pressure and then just keep checking. The reason why I do this is because it's easy to give fluid. It's very hard to take it away if you've overloaded them. This baby definitely needs fluid and needs needs fluid resuscitation, but do it in smaller aliquots. Don't I wouldn't just give them a crush 20 mils per kilo. Give them 10 mils per kilo, reassess straight away, and then give them another 10 mils per kilo as they need it. Now, the fluid that you should use for any child who is in shock should be a isotonic solution. At the moment, our guidelines are normal saline, and, and that's what I would use in a seven-day-old. Older children, you could potentially use something like Hartman's. Okay, very good. And with um, sepsis being very important in our differentials, we need to give this baby some antibiotics. So we look up the intranet to find the Sydney Children's Hospital Empiric Antibiotic Guidelines And we decide to give 50 milligrams per kilogram of kefetaxime and 100 milligrams per kilogram of ampicillin. Now, I prefer to have the kefetaxime given as a push dose. How do do you go about working out how to give this, you know, in water or saline? Um, So usually for newborn babies, I I actually look up the neonatal guidelines, which are available on the intranet. So it's called the Australasian Neonatal Medicine Formulary. And the reason why I do that is they tell you about how to make the solution up, which is that you do actually do need to make it up with some water for injection, but then it can be given as a push. And I would, in this case, absolutely give it as a push. You're not going to stand and give it as an infusion. Yeah, very good. And if you're struggling with access, just give it IM. Okay. Okay. And could you also comment on the reasoning behind us using kefetaxime instead of keftriaxone? And at what age are you happy to use keftriaxone from? So the reason for kefetaxime instead of keftriaxone is keftriaxone displaces bilirubin from albumin and so it's particularly contraindicated in neonates and so usually you would not use it under one month of life for keftriaxone. Having said that, you'll find most paediatricians don't tend to use keftriaxone. So pretty much we will always use kefetaxime. I think it just becomes a habit for us. Even though the guidelines say under a month, I usually don't tend to use it until under over three months usually. Okay, yeah. fair yeah. enough. 
And when would you think about adding in vancomycin or acyclovir to your empiric antibiotics? So in a seven-day-old, you probably don't need to add vancomycin. So in an older child, you would because what you're doing is covering resistant pneumococcal infection, which is less likely in a seven-day-old. Okay. The time that you would use vancomycin is say that this was an ex-premature baby. So say this was a baby that was born at 25 weeks, had it been in an intensive care unit and had gone home and now had been home for a couple of days and they're they're now only seven days corrected of life but actually have been hanging around in a tertiary hospital for many, many months Mm -hmm. before they sent home, I would give vancomycin for those because they tend to get colonised Acyclovir, any time that you're worried about a encephalitis or a meningitis, mm-hmm. you would add in acyclovir as part of your empiric coverage. And certainly HSV can present as sepsis and as, a, as an overwhelming sepsis is what it can present as. So I would, I would add acyclovir probably into my empiric coverage with this particular baby. Particular risk factors are if mum has had an active infection and it's brand new and has delivered vaginally, but the actual what level of risk there are is all very complicated to follow protocols and really actually you'd cover it as part of your empiric just to be on the safe side okay it's got an 80 percent mortality so you want to be covering now this baby's oxygen saturations remain in the low 80s despite giving 100 percent oxygen and we would obviously now be on the phone to the newborn and pediatric emergency transfer service known as nets to get advice regarding this very complex sick neonate. The baby's been having some apneas. Now, high flow nasal prong oxygen and CPAP will help with oxygenation, but not actual ventilation. So how would you suggest we manage apneas in an unwell neonate? So I guess the first thing is, like I said right at the beginning of this, is to recognise that those pauses and apneas is a baby that's tipping on the edge. And one of the things we say in paediatrics is never trust a neonate. And one of the problems with neonates is they look completely fine until they drop off a cliff. And this is a baby who, when they arrived, is very much hurtling down the cliff. So you're going to provide respiratory support early in a baby like this and going to anticipate deterioration early. So for managing apneas in this particular baby, you would manage it through bagging them. Whether you use a Neopuff T-piece to do it or use a bag and mask, that is absolutely what you need to do. Ideally, a T-piece or an anaesthetic bag and mask that allows you to have some CPAP to -hmm. prevent underlying atelectasis would be ideal so that you're able to do CPAP within adding positive pressure ventilation as you need to. So, Dr. Stewart, if you don't have access to an anaesthetic bag or a tea piece, what other ways would we be able to give some CPAP with ventilation? So, some bag and masks have peep valves. So, if you have a peep valve, you can use it through bag and mask ventilation, knowing that as you give positive pressure and then let go of the positive pressure, you're maintaining a certain amount of background peep. So, that can be one way of doing it. If you don't have that, your only other option is just bagging when you need to and you can't give background CPAP. Um, the only other thing I should mention is just a little thing around bag, mas- bag valve masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the issues with bag valve masks is if there's no pressure peep valve attached to them, when you hold it over a newborn's face and don't provide positive press- pressure ventilation by squeezing the bag, you actually can risk suffocating the baby. So unless your bag valve mask has a peep valve, you actually have to squeeze the bag to provide positive pre- pressure ventilation and open the valve. 
If you're lucky enough to have a bag valve mask that has a peep valve, that is a specific neonatal one, you can ho hold it over the baby's um, face while the baby is spontaneously breathing without squeezing the bag. Okay. So just to summarise, if the bag valve mask has a specific neonatal peep valve, then the baby is able to breathe spontaneously. But if it doesn't, we must squeeze the bag and give positive pressure ventilation if we're holding it over their face. Would that be correct? Yeah, that would be correct. And I would also set your PEEP valve at around five centimetres of PEEP, just the same way as you would with a Neopuff circuit. Great. That's, that's very helpful. When you're timing it, what you're wanting is basically you're supporting their breath. So this baby by this stage having apneas are probably having long pauses, so you're going to bag them through those pauses. And then when they start to breathe themselves, ideally providing CPAP and, or depending how low their respiratory rate is dropping, you might actually provide positive pressure breaths timing with each of their inspirations. So if they're starting to drop their respiratory rate down into those 20s and 30s, you're going to have to be providing positive pressure ventilation at that point. Right. Okay. So we'll use the, the bag or the, the uh, near puff to support their ventilation. Now, in terms of the oxygenation, mm -hmm. if we're thinking about using either CPAP or high flow nasal prong oxygen, how do you decide between which of those you want to use? Look, high flow is never used in a critically ill situation like this. Like this is a baby that's heading towards intubation, really. So I wouldn't use high flow in this particular situation. If they're still breathing, absolutely, it would be CPAP. And CPAP is usually preferable. It doesn't mean you need to attach a bubble CPAP circuit to the baby because that can take ages. Mm -hmm. You can literally stand and use your T-piece from your Neopath circuit as CPAP or using an anaesthetic bag with the end cut off so yeah. that you can provide some CPAP through that way would be my ideal situation. Some bag and masks have peep valves. So if you have a peep valve, you can use it through bag and mask ventilation, knowing that as you give positive pressure and then let go of the positive pressure, you're maintaining a certain amount of background peep. High flow is a child that is usually working hard. So if they're actually, if it looks like that you're actually thinking they're a respiratory child mm -hmm. and they're still at the, at the point of working really hard but not having apneas. So they've not teetered on that cliff. They're not starting to drop down their cliff. They're right at that early stage where they're working really hard and chugging away and maybe grunting. High flow is a great thing that can act to give them that initial respiratory support. It gives you a bit of poor man's peep. It gives you a bit of CO2 washout and so acts and gives you humidification or which helps with mucosillary clearance so all of which helps in a really complicated respiratory case before they become peri-arrest but if they're at the point where you've got a child like this where they're peri-arrest there's no point in high flow you'd absolutely go towards CPAP and you're actually heading towards intubation and also if you're strongly suspecting underlying cardiac like you are in this one they haven't really responded to oxygen you're 100% going to CPAP and heading towards intubation. Now, you have mentioned to me previously the importance of putting a gastric tube down to deflate the stomach, particularly if you are using CPAP or those cases, as you mentioned, where you might be using high-flow nasal prong oxygen. What guides your choice as to whether you're going to use the nasal or the oral route for a gastric tube? Yeah, so it's a good question. So it's, it is an important point to remember, um, not just for CPAP and high-flow, but also for bagging. So when you're bagging a baby in particular, you're filling up their stomach with a lot of air and can make actually ventilating them harder. 
So it's really important to decompress the stomach, not just um, aspirate, but actually push on the stomach a little bit while you do so, and you'll find you'll suddenly get 20 or 30 mils of air out at one go. Guiding choice of nasal or oral root really depends what you're using for respiratory support and how old they are. So a brand new baby generally tolerates an oral orogastric tube really without a problem but you'll often find slightly older babies start gagging and getting really upset with an orogastric tube and much prefer a nasal tube but again it depends what you're doing so if you're going to be using a, a tiny little nasal mask for bubble CPAP if that's what they're going into the nasal nasogastric tube might get in the way in this sort of situation where you've got an absolute emergency you're heading towards intubation and you're probably providing CPAP using an anesthetic bag or using a a t-piece I would just use a nasogastric tube get it down as quickly as possible okay okay very good so we're going to leave a discussion of the management of congenital heart disease for another podcast However, I think it's important to be aware of the possible need for prostaglandin E2 in unwell neonates. Are you able to give a brief outline of when we might use this? Yeah, so um, prostaglandin E2 or alprostadil is what is usually used in New South Wales. The purpose of that is to either keep open or reopen a closed patent ductus arteriosus. So the time when you are likely to use it is in a child who you suspect has a ductal-dependent lesion and you're trying to maintain them alive for long enough to get to definitive surgical care. You will obviously always only ever use this in conjunction with a conversation with NETS. And then there's lots of differences in how you will use it. So in a case like this where you've got a collapsed neonate, you'll actually start at very high doses because what you're doing is trying to reopen a closed duct Whereas if you have a case that maybe presents at two or three days of days of life that is in a missed congenital cardiac disease, maybe a cyanotic lesion, but is well with a duct that is open and no signs of it closing, they'll start at a much lower rate of infusion. And the idea is that you're just keeping the duct open while you're waiting for the retrieval team to get there. It is important to know that prostaglandin at very high doses will much worsen apneas. Mm-hmm. But having said that, this child is at a point where you're going to have to secure their airway anyway, so you, you are going to be intubating this child. Okay. Uh, it will also drop their blood pressure as well, so you have to think about blood pressure management as well. Yes, and, and if you don't have the skills or access to someone who can intubate the baby, essentially we just need to continue to bag until yeah, it's arrived. Absolutely, and I think this is where um, it is all comes down to respiratory support. So as long as you're bagging, you've put an NG down, you're decompressing that stomach a lot, you can also use an LMA as well if needs be. So always remember that's available, and yet you can continue to bag while, while all of these other things are happening. It doesn't have to prevent you from starting prostaglandin if it's indicated in this case. In fact, even though this baby likely requires intubation, supportive management with CPAP first and then bag mask ventilation later and circulatory support with fluids and prostaglandin are the first steps in management of this baby and they can be incredibly effective. When you think about it, this baby is critically unwell and is likely to worsen on induction for intubation and is at risk of cardiovascular collapse when you give them induction for intubation. So I would support their airway and breathing and wait for advice from the retrieval team before considering the risky step of intubation in this infant, even though we know that is likely where the management is heading ultimately. Oh, that's great. Now, before we finish up, are there any other important points that you would like to make before we finish today? No, I mean, I think they're fantastic questions and it's a really good case. I think it's a good case in highlighting that, firstly, presentations for unwell babies are often nonspecific. 
so often it is they're just off their feeds, that never trust a newborn, that often they go from a little bit off to at death's door in an incredibly short period of time can happen over the course of an hour or two. So it is always worth being very cautious. The importance of providing early respiratory support in a baby that's starting to show pauses and signs of tiredy, tiring is really important. And then also looking at cardiac and, and thinking about managing cardiac and always thinking about cardiac as a differential for cyanosis in a baby. So I think it's a great case. Oh, thanks so much, Dr. Stewart. That's been a great overview of some of the initial assessment and management of a sick neonate. I hope in the future we might be able to delve further into this and other paediatric topics. So I very much appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. Thank you very much, Louise. It was great fun. All right. Thanks a lot.